You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. At the very least, at the very least, you can say that a devastating midterm loss doesn't portend anything negative for the president. Pretty exciting episode today. We're going to have Matt Lewis on, and you may know Matt Lewis, senior columnist, The Daily Beast. You may have seen him on CNN as a political commentator. Uh, he's also the host of Matt Lewis and the News podcast. So go ahead and sign up for that. We're going to talk midterms, midterms, midterms. I told this story back in 2007, so I think one of the good things about having a podcast for what is now... 12 years, 2006 when it started, is that, hey, I can repeat a few stories, right? <laughs> we have a lot of new listeners now, I would hope. Uh, you may know your history, but you may not know that in the middle of the Civil War, five months after Union troops had repelled the Confederate Army, advancing on Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Abraham Lincoln found that his own Congress was under attack. But it wasn't the great Confederate army commanded by Robert E. Lee threatening to grasp the Capitol Dome, then under construction, from Lincoln's control. It was a short, bearded man, a clerk named Emerson Etheridge. Lincoln's Republicans had been hurt by the midterms of 1862, and now they actually represented a tactical minority of Congress, the Republicans did. It was only with the newly elected Republicans from the new state of West Virginia, and also from Oregon and also from Kansas, that Lincoln held any power. Now, fearing funny business might go on when the old Congress ended in March of 1863. This is the before the days when Congress always started in January. They passed a law, which formally provided the clerk with the ability to certify the credentials of members-elect, new members coming in. It allowed the clerk to count loyalists from the portion of the South under Union military control if it was needed. So if the Republicans needed three extra votes, say, in a House measure, they could go to the Louisiana Territory, an area of Louisiana right around New Orleans that was now under Union control, and maybe get three representatives from that area. But the statute didn't say it was limited to those southern states where the clerk could make a decision about credentials. And a problem with the whole theory of doing that is that Emerson Etheridge was from Tennessee. He had been a loyal administration supporter for the first year and a half of the war. But when the scene changed and the Emancipation Proclamation was passed 
Etheridge, like some other Tennessee loyalists, opposed freedom and social equality for former slaves, and he felt betrayed by the Republican Party and betrayed by Lincoln. He's sitting there as clerk. Etheridge conspires in the city of Washington with Democrats and conservative unionists to, in effect, take over the House from the Republican Party. He decided that he would accept the credentials of Democratic and conservative unionist congressmen, but not the credentials of the new pro-Lincoln Republicans who had just been elected from those states. And the reason that he had this power is because of the statute and because of the fact that the Speaker would not be sitting in the chair yet. Congress had just started, and there would only be one man, Etheridge, presiding, and no one to challenge his decision. So why is this dangerous? Well, Lincoln faced the situation of many presidents after a midterm. And if he was to lose control of the House through such a procedure, okay, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, uh, war Democrats who are going to say, you know, we support the prosecution of the war. We support fighting the South. We support, we support the Union being held together. But in practice, you're going to see a lot more investigation, you're going to see a lot more withholding of funds, a lot more questioning about the war, and much more attempts at peace and demands that the executive make attempts at peace with the South that are going to frustrate the war efforts. I mean, I think a good way to think about war Democrats sometimes, and there's variations between them. Some are just outright copperhead, basically supporting the South, and then you have some like uh, Andrew Johnson who really wanted to take it to the South, but just happened to be a Democrat by party. And if somewhere in the middle, I think like Joel Parker of New Jersey is a good example belly aching uh, about Lincoln, about the prosecution of the war, about having to raise troops, but certainly once troops came near Gettysburg, raising a regiment of New Jersey volunteers and supporting and funding the Union effort. So you have a lot of uh, variances, but you don't want people like Parker and his crowd, if you're Lincoln, in charge of the, uh, and his party in charge of the Congress. Well, in this, they had an ally, and that was Etheridge himself, because like many Washingtonians then and now, he talked a little bit too much about his great scheme. The word got out to the Republicans and a very concerned President Lincoln. He summoned the Speaker-to-be, Colfax of Indiana, to the White House, and asked him to organize Republicans to be sure that they, he said, be sure our men get in there. In December of 1863, when the new Congress finally convened, it took a while back then between the midterm elections and when the new Congress would sit. Emerson Etheridge excluded 16 Republicans from the roll call vote. This would have been a loss of control. But Etheridge got a little ahead of himself in committing a parliamentary mistake that allowed Republicans to vote on a motion to table. The Republicans would do an excellent job of persuading members to vote no on the motion to table, which, once defeated, meant that the 16 members then had to be seated. But the close call was not a vote of confidence for the nation and a president at war. A Republican congressman from Massachusetts, Henry Dawes, compared the event to Bull Run, 
which had been a military disaster for the Union, and said he could think of nothing so disastrous. And so there's always this kind of speculation period when the House changes hands. The president is of an opposite party from the new House. In 1874, Democrats captured the House while Grant was president. You had this, and you saw a slew of investigations ensue. In 1890, when Democrats wrested control from Benjamin Harrison, Democrats initiated a series of bills contesting an unpopular McKinley tariff that had been passed. In 1894, when Republicans took it back under Democrat Grover Cleveland. In 1910, when the House was taken by Democrats from William Howard Taft. In 1919, when Republicans faced hostile Congress. When Woodrow Wilson faced a hostile new Republican Congress that was going to disrupt his plans for the Treaty of Versailles and disrupt his plans for a League of Nations. In 1930, when during the Great Depression, Democrats, and this is after a series of by-elections that occurred because the margin was so thin, took the House from Herbert Hoover. He still had the Senate. And interestingly enough, Herbert Hoover is probably the one president who didn't want the Senate. He actually asked the Senate to let the Democrats run the chamber so that they could share equal responsibility with the Great Depression. Senate Republicans then and now don't always listen to the president. They did not like that idea very much. Now, by 1933, they would be out anyway. With all the speculation about, you know, what happens... um, This is why I wanted to talk to Matt Lewis. We're going to talk a bit about presidents after midterms. And he has a kind of controversial, but yet not entirely implausible theory about what happens next. Matt K. Lewis is a senior columnist at the Daily Beast, CNN political commentator and author of Too Dumb to Fail. He's also the host of Matt Lewis and the News podcast. Um, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So I guess we'll just uh, go right into it. I mean, what, what did you think about the uh, midterm result? Well, it was interesting because, I, you know, when the polls first closed around like 7 o'clock Eastern time, we started to see things, you know, results coming in uh, and trickling in. I think my first instinct was pretty good night for Republicans, you know, Democrats, we're going to take the House. That was kind of baked into the cake. Mm-hmm. But it felt like Republicans were exceeding expectations, probably going to end up with like 53 or 54 Senate seats. And I think as the night wore on and as the days have gone on, it has started to look uh, a little less positive for Republicans and uh, more like, you know, what we would fairly call a blue wave. Yeah, I was going to say that night that it was more of a wah than a wave. <laughs> you know, just had the beginning part of it, but uh, uh, I think as things went on, you could at least in the house races say say the word wave and not look not look silly. It's nowhere near 2010, not as close to say 1994. Uh, I think that the the expectations game and the baking things into the cake means so much now, and so everyone just simply expected the the house. Well, meanwhile, it's a pretty big achievement to take a take a branch of Congress, right? Definitely. But, you know, it wasn't a surprise. We had Mm -hmm. nine months probably of this, you know, 
conventional wisdom saying Republicans are going to lose the House. So when it does happen, and at first it looked like it wasn't going to be that by that many seats, um, you know, I think it's kind of greeted with a yawn. I think my headline that night was something to do with a trickle, not a wave. Yep. But again, if you look at it just just in terms of the House, the magnitude and and the accomplishment, uh, it's a big deal what happened. And, you know, and I think also some of these other races, you know, like um, election night, we thought Martha McSally would be the new senator from Arizona. And of course, Kristen Cinema is. And so like a lot of things like that ended up kind of changing some surprises that happened uh, over the next couple of days. And we still don't know what's going to happen exactly down in Florida. Yeah, true. Um, it's true. As we're, as we're talking, the, uh, Scott's ahead. Uh, and it seems like a significant amount, but that's still under some contest. We'll see what happens with that Senate race. You, th- you know, the talk was definitely more towards Republicans in the Senate races, more towards Democrats in the House races in terms of the expectations game. And, you know, you thought, for instance, like Heller was looking a little stronger, uh, running yeah. up to that election. And then that was just in, Boom, Nevada ticked off. And by the way, I, I've heard from from sources that everybody I want to say everybody. So so all the experts, the uh, the commentators, uh, they said that Heller was in trouble. But Heller's people, I'm told, believed that they were gonna win and that their their modeling of the polling was actually wrong. And interestingly, apparently it's with seniors. I'm I'm looking into this right now, but it appears that one of the kind of underrated stories of the night was how senior citizens broke against Trump in a way that they normally don't break against Republicans in midterms. That would be an interesting story if you see. I mean, that was that was um, Obama's worst performing group, I I would say, throughout his entire presidency through both races uh, that, you know, 60 or above. Um, and to, to, it's interesting. It might be like a who who showed up type thing. Uh, those who showed up in the midterm who were of that age, you know, were tending to cast a vote against Trump versus the entire uh, the entire voting base being suddenly against Trump. It would be interesting. Yeah, it's it's so hard to tell. And also, I mean, you're going off of things like um, exit polling. We don't we don't really know how seniors voted, but no, it's true. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Um, anyway, that's something to look out for. Everybody's talking about the suburban moms uh, and the college-educated white women. Not a lot of talk about seniors. One of the reasons I wanted to touch base with you is you had a very interesting article uh, that was about, uh, and, and this was prior to the midterm, but with indications that uh, Democrats would take the House, that you actually felt this would be a positive for President Trump. Well, look, I think you could definitely make the argument mm-hmm. That at the very least, at the very least, you can say that a devastating midterm loss doesn't portend anything negative for the president. There's just not a harbinger of things to come. You could maybe even argue it's helpful. But in modern history, 
two things. There, there are basically, you know, two trends that seem pretty, pretty steady. Uh, trend number one is that presidents tend to have horrible midterms, mm. their first midterm election, and presidents tend to get reelected. And I don't know if it's, you know, causation or just correlation, but that those two th- things tend to go hand in hand. And so at the very least, I, I don't think you could look at what happened, uh, you know, last Tuesday night and then say, well, this shows that Donald Trump can't get elected. This shows that, the, you know, mm. that, you know, that it's insurmountable. I just don't think you can do that. I, I, you know, some of it may be warning, you know, may, maybe Trump should take heed. I'm not saying he should ignore it, but uh, I also don't think it's uh, predictive. Yeah, I mean, my uh, my own opinion of it, uh, I think that in terms of taking heed, uh, far be it for me to suggest anything to the president. I, you know, uh, but uh, uh, I'm sure his advisors only go in there with the most <laughs> trepidation. But he's going to do what he's going to do. That's that's fairly obvious. That's his that's his style, and. Um, but I do think that the yeah, – my quick lesson on it is just that there's a there's a lot of talk about the left or, you know, like as a small group. It's a it's like a – it's a, a private club that's hanging out near Berkeley or something. And I think enlarging one's view of what the left electorate might be would be helpful and might be at least, very least, trying to find the factions which you can peel off um, if you're to be a success, successful president. Um, just because you noted history and I, you know, I talk a lot about history, the, the examples, um, yeah, I mean, Obama, Clinton, Eisenhower, uh, Truman, um, these are all good examples of where, you know, you lose the house and win your reelection. Uh, there's some interesting things with all of those. The Truman, um, Truman's an interesting case, you know, there was definitely talk that he wouldn't be reelected in 48 after losing in the House in 46. Um, he obviously did the famous, you know, kind of do nothing Congress. Yeah. Um, you, you know, what's funny. Um, I, I this sometimes you, you come across cool stuff that just doesn't fit into a 700 word column. Mm-hmm. But I went in, I looked up Harry Truman's speech at the Democratic convention when he won the nomination in 19, well, he, you know, he was the incumbent president, but the speech he gave at the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 1948, about 75% of the speech is him bashing the the Congress, the Republican Congress. Mm. I mean, it's amazing. This wasn't like a side issue for him. This wasn't like <laughs> He's going to run on a lot of things, and one of the things he does is attack the do-nothing Congress. Like, this was, you know, based on that speech, I mean, this was the bread and butter of his campaign, was attacking the Republican Congress. Oh, absolutely, and he was primed for it. Um, I think it was, like, late at night when he had to make the speech, and there was this um, moment where they, they were to release these birds, I guess, you know, uh, you, without like advanced video graphics at the time in 48, you know, you did things like releasing doves, you know, as a speech was to begin, one of them drops right to the floor, um, <laughs> you know, so he comes out, but he gives this speech and these, the, the DNC is tired and I mean, they're, this is, they're, they don't think they're going to win this. And yeah, he really electrified people. There's a slight thing that I always want to point out with the um, the do nothing Congress thing that might be different from the Trump situation. Um, 
is that the Republicans had had their convention. And if you you go back and look at that 48 platform, I had an old podcast where I did. I don't remember all of the points, but things like slum clearance, aid to education. Um, there were all these very liberal uh, health care, all these very liberal type platforms. Some of them might have been expressed in a little bit more like a uh, free market way. Uh, but the goal, the goals of all the programs are very similar to what the Truman wanted to do. So it put him in a very good position to be able to have that speech and then and then call the Congress together and say, hey, uh, I agree with you. Let's, you know, get this done. I'm calling you into session. So you have a little bit difference here where there's definitely a difference of philosophy. And it's not going to be as simple as, uh, hey, you and I agree, <laughs> uh, Pelosi and uh, – but I also, having said all that, I wonder if it even matters. I mean, Trump could still use that argument. It's a very powerful argument for a president to use. Like, I'm trying to get things done in the Congress. They're not letting. Yeah, me. I mean, that's that's part of part of my argument that um, of, of why a bad midterm, losing the House at least, might help Trump is it helps him spread the blame. Spread the blame. Now, yeah. look, he's going to blame people whether whether <laughs> there's a plausible. You know whether whether there's a plausible motive or not, um, but this makes it plausible. He he can plausibly split, spread the blame, and I think he will definitely do that. And he gets the Senate. And uh, my feeling is, I had a cast on this in the past called King's Rook. Just the idea that when a president has loses the House, but they keep the Senate, they have that defensive mechanism like you would in a chess game, where you can cover your king with the rook. Um, and uh, Reagan had it, uh, Taft, Wilson. There's a couple presidents. Oh, Obama obviously had it for six years where you have the Senate but not the House. I guess, you know, I don't know how you feel about it. I, I thought about it this morning. I said if I if I was a president and had a choice, just you could only pick one, I would pick the Senate. Yeah, if you, if you could only keep one. And, uh, you know, I think that's true for, for a couple reasons, especially true for Trump, right? On one hand – you need the Senate to remove a president, two-thirds vote in the Senate to remove a president. Mm-hmm. So that's something Trump, more than other presidents, might have to worry about. And the other thing is I think Trump's big legacy is probably judges, and it's the Senate right. that confirms judges. So, yeah, I think definitely in the case of Donald Trump, if you had to lose one chamber, it would be the House. You would definitely want to keep the Senate. You are a, a conservative but you haven't always been seen eye die with Trump. Yeah, how do you feel now? As you know, it's been a couple of years, and then you've have you gotten the aforementioned judges. There's been some conservative appointments. Do do you feel good about it? The fact that you got the judges, or is it is it is it a fair trade to say? Or, or? no, I, I don't think it's a fair trade. Mm. But I also say uh, if you have to take the bad, you should take the good too. I mean, um. I, I, I do think Trump has done a lot of damage to the sort of the fabric, the social fabric of America. He's done a lot of damage to the Republican brand. I'm not I'm not over that. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not going to say, well, it all worked out. Um, but I think if you have to have that damage anyway, and that that probably was kind of, you know, a fait accompli uh, baked into the cake the moment Trump won the presidency, then you might as well get something good out of it, right? And so I I think the judges, as a conservative, by and large, the judges mm. are very positive. So I'm one of these people in the weird position of of kind of taking things day by day and and criticizing him a lot. 
you know, based on what he's doing to the culture mm. and, you know, the polarization and attacking the media as enemies of the people, but also, you know, applauding him when when he does something good, like, for example, pick a conservative judge. Yeah, one of the things that uh, the Senate candidate, uh, now I forget her name, but the new senator in Arizona, is she made a point of running kind of in that fashion. In other words, he ran as a Democrat, but she wasn't one of the people that you might, if it was a New Jersey suburb or a California suburb where the whole thing's Trump. She's like, Trump's not a thing in my election. Hmm. First of all, Trump's not a thing. I think that's one lesson for liberals if they didn't achieve as much as they wanted in this midterm, that it might be time to start realizing that the person is a person, uh, whatever you think. Uh, he's a president. He has the full powers of the office, and he's going to be there. I don't see any realistic uh, impeachment prospects or anything like that. So it's time to start. Uh, 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 the, you know, there's a, there just seems to be a little bit of uh, uh, this um, – uh, you know, it's like some, uh, something has happened to the country instead of thinking about a person being elected, even if it was the electoral college, that's the system that we have. One thing that struck me uh, in the midterm, I was curious if you, if you felt the same way is, um, Ohio and Florida. So the positive news for me, even though I know Florida is still being counted as we speak, if you're on the GOP side, that Florida looks real good. And particularly for the, the Trump idea, the way that he, Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow talks and the style and the to me that just seemed to work very well in florida that's he has a home there a lot of people from new york move there and being a, a new jerseyan and somewhat familiar with the new york type person you know i've seen examples though that those who have moved there sometimes are moving away from cities and now they're in florida um and their kind of attitude is a very can be a kind of Trump style. I'm going to say what I say. I'm going to do what I do. They might not agree with everything. But um, you saw that there was some strength there. And the Democrats had a lot of trouble in Florida. And then in Ohio, other than Sherrod Brown, and even he was somewhat close at 53%, um, you know, it wasn't that positive for them. They're pretty important states. Yeah, no, I, th I think Florida's really interesting. Mm. And I'm sure if, if you had a liberal on, they would say, well, they were disenfranchising voters or, or something, and that, and and that's the reason Republicans did well in Florida. But I mean, that that could be looked at. Let's just yeah. assume that everything's mm. on the up and up, and the numbers are the numbers, and Republicans won the Senate and the governor, and you know, re retained the governorship and won the Senate seat in Florida. I find that the really fascinating mm. one. Like, it, it, I understand why Trump has appeal in the Rust Belt. I understand why Trump has appeal in the deep. South, I understand why um, Trump has problems in, uh, you know, the Southwest and in the suburbs. But Florida is the one that really is curious, you mm. know, why he does so well. And I think you make a really good point about all of the the New Yorkers who, you know, who moved to Florida. You know, something's up down there, and it could be 
Some of it could be uh, Cuban Americans who are probably mm-hmm. more pro-Trump than other Hispanics. Uh, some of it could be just you know Mar-a-Lago being uh, you know having a place down there. But but whatever the case, I think the assumption is for all the people who worry about demographic trends, the assumption is that um, as you know as Trump does better in the Deep South and in the Rust Belt that. Republicans and Trump specifically could start having problems in places like like Nevada and Arizona and maybe even Texas and mm-hmm. maybe even Florida. And what happened in Florida this time around, at least kind of, you know, dispels that concern. Yeah, it's at least its usual purple, if not a reddish purple. Uh, yeah, Texas was interesting. Yeah, I think I still think Beto O'Rourke uh, would, would not be a bad presidential candidate. Um despite losing down there. That's kind of a, a controversial opinion, I think, these days. But, yeah. you know, I'm not I, – I don't think Democrats look to me for advice, but I think they could they could do worse than nominating him. Yeah, well, there's a couple of arguments. One, he, he is a House member, so it's not like he's totally just some um, person with no office, right? So you could say, okay, that you got to go back to James Garfield for that one. But, you know, um, I also do believe that – presidential campaigns have to have a little poetry in them they can't be boring uh, they can be of course if there's no other <laughs> candidate nominated that that mm-hmm. wouldn't be boring i mean trump certainly wasn't boring it, 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 and so it, you can make a case where a, pre- a president has to kind of inspire and and do things i guess i i see a dearth of candidates right now um so I, I certainly think that's valid. Um, well, a dearth of good candidates. There's probably yeah. going to be 20, <laughs> yeah, 20 there's people Yeah, be a lot running. of people running in Iowa, running for, I think, almost running for VP. Um, but right, uh, candidates, to say good or bad, but candidates that you think, you, you, you think about them up against Trump. And, you know, I always tell people in Ohio, if you have an idea, try it in Ohio. Well, how would your idea work in Ohio? So if you think about presidential candidates, you think they're going to win in Ohio. Maybe you don't need Ohio anymore, but it's been pretty useful, you know, uh, up until recent times. So I wouldn't want to run a campaign without having a realistic chance of it. You know, you look at someone like Beto, maybe he can inspire enough, maybe a Biden, maybe Sherrod Brown. But yeah, everybody seems to be a little, um, yeah, unappetizing there. Um, oh, another article that I saw or a tweet that you had is you had suggested that Trump perhaps swap VPs for the next election. Right. So this is based on the premise that, you know, whether like say Bill Clinton and after after the Republican Revolution in 1994, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton comes back and wins reelection handily over Bob Dole. But part of the reason is he took it seriously. You know, he triangulated. He co-opted a lot of the Republicans message. Um, it doesn't seem likely that Donald Trump will be able to do that kind of thing. Like Trump can't change who he is. He can't change his character. He's very, I think it's very doubtful that he would even try to pivot and do infrastructure and cut a deal with Chuck and Nancy. Like even if he, (laughs) even if they would go along with that, I don't know that Trump could stick to a deal longer than a half hour. That's the, seems to be the problem, the sticking to it. So the only like, you know, tool left in his toolbox is to change the people around him. And we see him doing that, you know, uh, right now, Mm -hmm. different positions. And, you know, I don't think it's crazy 
to think that Trump might decide, hey, how do I, I've got this problem. Everybody says, this is how Trump thinks. Everybody says I've got this problem with, you know, suburban women. Uh, and if you're Donald Trump, how do you fix that? Well, you can't fix yourself. You, you don't even think you need to fix yourself. Mm. So the way you fix things is, is to hire people to fix them. That's the premise. And I think that, um, I don't know if it's going to happen, but, you know, Nikki Haley, uh, she needs to do, if she wants to be, if she wants to run in 2024, she needs to do something. She is a hot commodity right now. That would be a great choice. Incredibly appealing, mm. but you can't sit around for six years and be the nominee. You just can't. You got to do something. Now, maybe that's, you know, Lindsey Graham becomes, uh, you know, I don't know, head of the head of the Justice Department and she takes the Senate seat in South Carolina. I mean, but she's got to do something. So I think there's an argument for her to do this. There's an argument for Trump to do this. Um, I do not know why Mike Pence would go along with this. Well, it, it's interesting. History wise, uh, quickly, there a lot of people will look at it and say, well, this isn't something that people do. But actually, there's a lot of close calls. Uh, George W. Bush revealed in his memoir that he actually, uh, Cheney offered, you know, without being prodded by him, if you want, if you want to drop me, drop me. You know, I, I was there for the first term. Um, he also noted in his memoir that he wanted his father, he was very strong advocate of having his father drop Quayle. Nixon wanted to drop Agnew. Eisenhower wanted to drop Nixon. There's a lot of presidential wanting to do this, but it seems like the vice presidents get um, institutionally stuck in there. And then they have a little bit of their own fan base. And, and also the president, this is what George H.W. Bush said, that the press would ruin him because over it, because, um, you know, it would look disjointed. Yeah. Uh, it would look confused. Uh, not, well, it looks like you made a mistake yeah. or something. But FDR did it, I think, twice. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and look, these are so, so what you're describing are norms, mm-hmm. like post World War II norms. Well, guess who likes to break post-World War II <laughs> norms? You're right there, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, I, I think it's an underused play myself because incumbent presidents going to an election have very little to do to create some pizzazz. But um, again, things are very different. Well, hey, it's been great um, talking to you, Matt. We definitely would love to have you on again sometime. Uh Matt Lewis and the News Podcast. Go and sign up for that. Anything else that you uh, you have, you have a, a website or people should go to find out more about you? Oh, just uh, read my stuff at the Daily Beast. Watch me on CNN. And uh, please do go to iTunes and download Matt Lewis and the News. Great. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to thank Matt Lewis for coming on the show. Remember to catch him at the Daily Beast on CNN and on the Matt Lewis and the News podcast, his book, Too Dumb to Fail. Um, check it out. And uh, our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you're not subscribed to the show, please subscribe. want to let you know you should be downloading the Pandora Podcast Genome app because we're on there. And that's a select group of shows that get to be on there. Not everybody does. So please think about that. Thanks for listening.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off: U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.